Well, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn open to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We are uh, working our way through the letter to the Ephesians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, And the reason that we are taking a look at Ephesians this fall is because about a month ago now, we introduced a new vision uh, along with a mission and values. And Uh, When we introduced that vision, mission, and values, we uh, talked about how it is all rooted in this letter to the Ephesians. And so really, this sermon series is a vision series for us to unpack this uh, vision. And this is maybe our fourth week now in the series. And what I have said um, each week, uh, just to give you context for this letter, is that, again, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, He was actually imprisoned at the time of writing this letter, most likely in Rome. And this was a circular letter. And what that means is that uh, Paul did not write to a specific congregation uh, because of circumstances that he wanted to speak into. It's rather much more general. Uh, And so Paul wrote this letter Uh, with the assumption that it would actually be circulated among a network of churches in uh, the area of Ephesus and for it to be read aloud as all of his letters would have been in um, the church communities um, to which they were sent. So far, what we have covered in this letter is that we have said that Paul basically is using this letter as an opportunity to rehearse the story of God, to take us through Uh, the story of God in summary form as it unfolds for us basically in the Bible. Um, And this morning, what we're going to look at is we're going to hear that there is both bad news and good news in this story. So let me read verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2, and then we'll get into it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Spirit, you are here. And we trust that you are able to come and pursue us and find us wherever we find ourselves in this moment. Some of us uh, are believing. 
Others of us are disbelieving, and still others of us aren't exactly sure what we believe in this moment. But Holy Spirit, you know us. We pray that you would search our hearts and that you would bring the word of God to bear on our hearts, our minds, our very lives in such a way that we would have an encounter with Jesus and be changed. We pray this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Remember, Paul is telling the story of God in this letter, as I've already said, as I I teed up the scripture reading. And as I said, we learn from this passage that in this story, there is both bad news and good news. So let me ask you this. Do you want the bad news or the good news first? Well, that's good because that's what I was going to do first. (laughs) So we're all in agreement. So let's start with the bad news since you asked for it. We get the bad news right off the bat, don't we? Paul begins, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's a lot here, isn't there? There's a lot here to digest, a lot here for us to work through. But what we know um, just on the surface level is that this is not positive news, right? This is what we could describe as bad news. Uh, We all know what it's like to receive bad news in our lives. Uh, It's not something that is desirable. Uh, It's oftentimes something that we resist. And when, um, if you're like me, um, I I think uh, like over the course of my life, There have been many instances in which I've received bad news, and my response to it is to try to maybe distract myself, uh, to be indifferent to it, Um, in many ways to try to go on with my life as though I did not hear the bad news that that came into my life. Do you you know, have you ever done that sort of thing? And, And I think that that is at least one of the reactions or responses that we could have to the bad news that we're confronted with here in uh, Ephesians 2. None of, us, none of us wants to accept the fact that there's something wrong with us, right? I, I mean, maybe, uh, I, depending on where you're coming from, it's a struggle for you to admit that um, there's something wrong with the world. But I, I think at the very least, we, it's hard for us to admit that there's something wrong with us. Like, in other words, to say, there's something wrong with me. Um, you know, we like to think, at least some of us, that people are good. And let me, let me back up here for a moment because I think this is helpful context. You know, I said that in the story of God, as Paul is taking us through it, there is both uh, bad news and good news. But the reality is, is we need to be careful because I, I think sometimes as Christians, we jump right into the bad news and we miss a larger context. The, the reality is, is that the biblical story begins with you could say very good news. The biblical story begins with a world that was made whole, a world that was intended by God to flourish, uh, to be beautiful, to be in harmony in every way that we could imagine. So that actually is the starting point of the Bible. We, the Bible does not begin with bad news, but you know we're, we're picking up here in Paul's stream of thought in this letter, and he's gotten to the bad news in this letter. And so that's, I think that's helpful context. As Christians, we don't want to start with the bad news. 
there's a larger context, and Paul's aware of that context. He's actually touched on some of those themes of creation, uh, as we've looked at in previous weeks already in the letter. But yeah, here we have this bad news, and it's hard for us to accept because in many ways, we like to think of ourselves as good or as people as generally good. And again, we want to be a little careful because like, uh, there is a sense in which people are good. And what I mean by that is that people are made in the image of God. The Bible tells us at the very beginning that God created the human race in his image, to be like him, to reflect his glory out into the world. And so that's a very noble beginning. That's a place of dignity and worth. And every human being shares that. But the biblical story moves on from there. There's a story of the fall, of how human beings ran away from relationship with God, God who is their good end, God who has our best interest in mind. The, The Bible tells us that we've run away from him. And that running away from God has separated us from him. It's isolated us from him. It's broken us. It's corrupted us. And the the truth still remains that we're in the image of God, but sometimes, many times, that image of God can be hard to see, you know, beyond all of the corruption and the brokenness. And so it's this bad news about the fall and how it has impacted human beings. And this, the, the way that human beings have been impacted by this fall is holistic. Paul, Paul talks about how we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And so this is very holistic, mind, body, desires, um, sin, uh, running away from relationship with God has consequences for every area of life. It, it, it breaks us down in every dimension of who we are as people and out in the world. So this is the bad news that we begin with. Now, let me ask this question, because some of you may be, be thinking this already. Oh, geez, this sounds really pessimistic. It even sounds maybe a little outdated. Um, is this actually true? Well, I, I want you to think about your own experience in life, um, personally, but also you know, as the world, as you look at it. Like, you have to agree that there's something wrong with the world, right? Um, let me just take an example of politics. All of the divisiveness, all of the argumentation, all of the um, corruption um, that we find in politics, beginning, you know, currently even with our own president and the way that he speaks and other politicians. And we're often left with, like in, in the arena of politics, where, where, do we, where do we go here? Like, who do we trust? That's an indication. Like, we don't think about it in this way, but it's an indication for us that something is dramatically wrong with the world. Like, like, like there's something wrong with people, right? And, and, and people touch things in areas of life, whether it be politics, government, uh, schools, you know, so on and so forth, our own relationships. People who are broken touch things, and it makes things broken. This is the problem that Paul is describing. Um, this past week, I uh, um, came across on Facebook, I follow the, the humans of New York. Um, you know what I'm talking about, some of you? Um, just features individual stories of people uh, out on the, the streets in, in New York, um, and this past week, I believe it was, it featured a, a young woman, I think she was uh, 25 years old, and she talked about her lifestyle, her lifestyle of 
partying. Uh, her lifestyle, like how she moved, I think that this was the context, how she moved into New York for this lifestyle to, to party and to give herself wholeheartedly to this. And she talked about how among the, the community of people that she would go clubbing with and, and things like this, that, that she identified them as family. But then, like as you're reading this, there, there's a turn. And, and she said this, but it was an illusion. They turned out to be lost like me. They were just as vulnerable as me, but some of them were twice my age. My friends have lost jobs from partying. One of them lost his kid, and deep down, I know they're sad. They miss something in their life, and they know it's too late, so they just wait for the weekend, wait for that moment to come again, and it always comes again for two or three more days, but it never lasts because Mondays exist. Because Mondays exist. Like, how would you fill in the blank for your own life and at the end of it say, but Mondays exist? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm talking about it figuratively now. Um, it, it could be like that you find yourself on the path of this woman, but I know that for some of you, that's not your path. Um, maybe you're trying to fill the void of life with success, um, with uh, trying to um, define your identity in a variety of ways, um, you know, so on and so forth. It might not look exactly like this, but my point is this, that we all can relate and resonate to what she's saying because we all know that there's this void, that we're up against something in life, aren't we? Like, and it's not just out there. Like, it's in here. Like, we rub up against it. We know that things just aren't the way that they were supposed to be. And, and we, maybe we, we sometimes even say that, and we, we're not even fully aware of what we're saying. We just, deep down inside, we know it. Mondays exist. The evidence of living in a world that is fallen, that is broken, exists, and we rub up against it constantly. And so the extent to which Paul talks about this, like he, he says that, uh, apart from relationship with God through Jesus, that we are, we're dead. Like, we're enslaved, we're in bondage. And, you know, I can't help but to think of, of the words of this young woman that I shared with you, because she didn't use those words, but it's almost like she's talking about herself and, and this community of hers as a community of the walking dead, right? Uh, I don't know if anybody actually watches that show anymore. I stopped years ago. Um, but it's like the walking dead, it's like zombies who are going about their lives trying to fill a void, but then you realize like day after day, year after year, the, the void is still there. And no matter what you're trying, like this is what Paul is describing, that we're, we're dead, we're, we're enslaved, we're in bondage. And he uses the word walk in, what, in, in which you once walked, you know, the, the, the walking dead, like we, we're walking around as zombies in bondage to sin is what Paul is describing here. And like this is hard news for us to accept because what Paul is saying is that because of the fall of the human race, we enter the world as those who are spiritually dead. I mean, I admit it. That's hard. I don't want to think, like not even thinking about you right now, I don't want to think of myself in that way. Like I want to think of myself as competent, as having it all together, as not in need of help. But the Bible's description of us is that we are born into this world spiritually dead because 
of humanity's running away from God. But he goes beyond that. There's an enemy. Like to make, to make the, the bad news worse, <laughs> there's an enemy who actually exists to destroy us, to keep us on this path of walking as the walking dead through life. He, he says that, um, that the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he, he's really referencing Satan here and evil powers. Now, I told you after I read this passage, there's a lot here. Like, there's a lot in here that we aren't accustomed to talking about on a daily basis. And we, 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 we got into this a little bit a couple weeks ago when Paul made another reference, because throughout this letter, Paul's going to reference things like the heavenly realms, and that there's a, he's going to basically imply that there's this spiritual battle that is going on all around us. And I get it. Like, on, on the one hand, we, we, we want to say, I, I don't know, it kind of sounds like a, a fairy tale. But I want, you, I want to encourage you, uh, again, to, to delve honestly into the brokenness of this world. Remember how I talked about, like, individuals are, are, are spiritually dead, how we're, we're sick and broken, and everything that we touch, like, we, we, we bring corruption and brokenness to. And then when you have many individuals, like, who make up communities, um, we, we, we corrupt structures and, and systems and there, there's, there's so many, what Paul is alluding to throughout this letter, and this would have been the case for the city of Ephesus, is that Satan is at work even through the systems of our world, the systems maybe even of our city that keep people in bondage. This is what Paul has in mind. And we can be naive to it, but what the Bible is actually wanting to do is to make us wise. The Bible wants us to be wise. We, we can say, that's fairy tale stuff. I don't believe in that. Meanwhile, we look out, out at the world and maybe we're indifferent to all of the corruption and brokenness around us. The Bible is wanting us to make, make us wise. The Bible wants us to be aware. And, and we'll talk more uh, about that here in a few moments. But Paul uses the word trespasses and sins to define this problem that we have sinned against God, that we have trespassed his law. Now, keep in mind, law, maybe it sounds like a dirty, bad word to you, but law in the biblical story is a good and beautiful word because the law refers to God's original beautiful design for the world, his design for everything to flourish and be in harmony. And so when the Bible talks about us trespassing that law, what the Bible has in mind is us going against the grain of the goodness that God has built into creation. In other words, it's, it's talking about our corruption, our, our taking even good things and making them bad or, or, or corrupting them. This, this is sin. It's running away from God and his intentions for us in this world. And so this is our situation. Tre um, we, have, we are trespassers of God's law and we are in bondage to sin. We are also, he goes further, as a result of this, enemies of God. Now, maybe you've been able to stomach everything up to this point, but you know, now you're thinking, okay, you're about to lose me because I don't, enemies of God, that, that seems harsh. Um, and, and he refers to, in verse 3, that we were once children of, of wrath, that those outside of relationship with God through 
Christ are children of wrath. How, how, how can this be? How can this be? How can this be and God be good? Well, we've talked about how we are born into bondage and sin, according to this passage. And it's hard for us to receive and accept this assessment of the human condition. It's, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is devastating news. Devastating news. Paul is basically holding an x-ray up on the human race and saying that we fall short, that we don't have it all together, that we are corrupt, and apart from God, we are helpless and desperate. I came across an article maybe a year ago that I thought was really interesting. And the title of the article was, A Wrathless God Has Victims. A Wrathless God Has Victims. And the guy who wrote this article started like this. He said, like many upper middle class mainline Protestants, which is to say white Christians, I've long taken issue with the concept of divine wrath believing it to conflict with God's goodness. The notion that God's wrath could be fixed upon me made God seem loathsome to me, a God not good. I've changed my mind about God's wrath, he writes. Or rather, my friend Brian Stollers has changed my mind. And he goes on to talk about his friend Brian Stollers and another guy named Dwayne Brown. Brian Stollers is an attorney who has been, had been working over a decade um, to basically free Dwayne Brown, who was on death row because he was unjustly accused of a crime. Now, I, I want you to think about this scenario. Think about, and, and there are many other examples, um, of somebody who is unjustly um, uh, accused of a crime and has found themselves in, in prison for a decade, in, in some instances, decades. Here's my question. Where is justice? Where will justice ever... Because let's say that at some point in time, this person is released, that the evidence finally shows or somehow people wake up and see, okay, um, he was unjustly accused, you can go free. That's not justice for this person who spent all of this time in prison. So where is justice? And this, this scenario in particular is what changed the view of this person uh, when it comes to God and his wrath. And um, he ends up quoting, and we have this quote on the screen, I don't know if all of you will be able to see it, by a theologian named Fleming Rutledge, and she says this, the wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God had temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and his coming to set matters right. A non-indignant or a non-angry God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception, and violence. I want to suggest to you that it is actually incredibly, we're still talking about the bad news, but it's actually incredibly good news that God is a God of wrath and that God is a God of justice and that he has dealt with it on the cross of Jesus. Because without that, I think Fleming, Fleming Rutledge is right, that he would be an accomplice in injustice, deception, and violence. This is not a teaching or a doctrine for us to be embarrassed over. It is good news, as I said. It is good news. And Fleming Rutledge, it's not up here, she says that if when we see an injustice, our blood does not boil at some point, we have not yet understood the depths of God. 
In other words, because God cares so much about goodness, beauty, and truth, he gets angry, really angry at sin, evil, and injustice. All right, let's talk now about the good news. You know, have you ever had that time in life where you're going through a season and you're just getting lots of bad news? And it's like, I mean, maybe you have literally like cried out, like, enough bad news, I need some good news. Well, Paul hears you. So he wants to give us good news. Verse 4. There's a, a stunning turning point here. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, and then he goes from there, and we'll, we'll talk about it in a moment. But verse 4 introduces this um, truth into the story. God intervenes. Like, if, and Paul's clear about it. God, verse 4, but God. God acts. God does something. God sees and he addresses it. And this is good news for us because what Paul has described about human beings in the world in which we live is not something that we can escape from ourselves. It's not something that we can save ourselves out of. Somebody from the outside must act. And this is the turning point here in verse 4. It's the start of the good news that God has acted, that he has done something. He intervenes. And notice how it's centered on mercy and love. I love how Paul says, because of the great love with which he loved us. There's repetition there. Paul wants to emphasize God's love. What moves God to act? Because I want you to think about it from God's perspective. God creates this world to be glorious and whole. And human beings that he has made in his image to care for the world do the opposite and wreck it, and destroy it, and corrupt it. Like, I, I know how I am in my own life. Like, if I were God, I would be thinking, all right, that, like, I'm going to just destroy it all once and for all. That's it. But God, being rich in mercy, and there's a deep love with which he loves us. His love moves him to act. And I, I said as I introduced the confession of sin that it is often hard for us to accept and to receive God's love. And I said there were two reasons. One reason is that so often in our own lives, we think of ourselves as unlovable, don't we? We think of ourselves as unlovable. And, you know, maybe there's a sense in which that's true. Like, as you know, you're all your own junk and stuff in your life. But God, being rich in mercy... He loves us with this love that he loves us with, and it moves him to act. Despite our unloveliness, God moves near us. He comes to us. Like, this is a stunning turning point in the story. Because, you, you know, think about your own human relationships, and maybe think of a person that you have deeply hurt, offended, and wounded. You know, I don't know if you have this example in your life, so it may be really hard to think of. And and rather than that person turning their back on you completely and walking away from you, they actually took the initiative to, to come back to you, to move towards you in love, in your unloveliness. This is what God has done. It is a stunning turning point in the story. This is why it is such good news. It is God's love that makes us alive. And that's where he goes next. Even when we were dead, as we talked about, 
in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul, like he, he interrupts what he was saying to make it clear, like you didn't do this. You couldn't do this. It's God's grace, his unmerited favor. You didn't earn um, God moving towards you in this way. Like it's all grace. It's, it's his love. And then he raised, so notice these three things here, that he made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. This is powerful because I, I think it speaks to the past, present, and future aspects of our salvation in Jesus. Um, we're, we're really good at thinking about the past aspects. In other words, okay, back here in history, Jesus died for me. I, I, I've received the work of Jesus on my behalf, and that brings me back into friendship, relationship with God. I get that. And then maybe you're a little confused, like, okay, what do I do now? Like, what does that mean for my life? And then maybe we're really good at thinking about the future aspect. Okay, like this day out here, Jesus is going to return. He's going to make all things new. I know my eternal destiny is secure, but, you know, what does it mean for me to live in light of that? So it's really the present, I think, that we struggle with a lot. And Paul is speaking to, I mean, he's speaking to all of those aspects, but he's especially speaking to the present aspect of our salvation. I mean, this is incredible that in the resurrection of Jesus and in our faith in it, like we we get attached to Jesus through faith and through our attachment, it's as though we already have been raised with Christ. We already have been made alive with him. Like we already are seated in the heavenly places with him. Like these are present realities that are hard to, to wrap our minds around, but they're the present aspects of our salvation, that, that who we are in Christ doesn't just have implications for the past or the future, but even for the present. And what Paul wants to do is encourage and empower us to bo- live boldly in the present. Why? Why did God do this? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is a universal, like God's plan of salvation, his story to rescue people out of the plight that we've talked about and to restore them to relationship with him and his image bearers in the world, to participate with him in his mission in the world. He does this as a universal display of his glory and his grace. God is showing off his beauty. And when we get to chapter 3, we're going we're gonna to hear more specifically about how the church is meant to, in the words of Paul, uh, display the manifold wisdom of God. This is the purpose of it all. We, we saw this in verses 3 through 14 of the first chapter, didn't we? That the point of this all is for God's glory, God's greatness, God's beauty to be displayed universally so that people would see it and be drawn to him. Verse 8, for by grace, like he's repeating it again, in case like you somehow have missed this after all that I've said, like you didn't do this, like this isn't your doing. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Like that's what we, you know, that's our response to what God has done, faith. And this is not your own doing, this whole process of salvation. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. We could say it this way. 
that in view of what God has done for us, this display of his grace, his glory, and his goodness, it should humble us. For us to be humbled, we have to honestly accept the bad news. Because we can't appreciate the good news. We can't appreciate the beauty of God's glory and his goodness if we don't accept the bad news that we started with in the passage, right? Like we have to really accept that bad news, not just generically, but this, this like describes me apart from Jesus. Like this is true of me, not just the world, not just other people. It's true of me. But I believe that God in Jesus has done this for me. And that humbles us and is meant to practically shape the way that we interact in this world and the way that we live out our relationship with God. And then finally, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We could say it this way. God does not just save us from something. He saves us to something. We're really good at, at, at talking about how God saves us from our sin. He, he saves us from God's his wrath through Christ. He He saves us from eternal separation from him. We're we're good at talking about those things. But sometimes we're not as good at talking about what he has saved us for and to. And that is for relationship with him. That is for his mission. That is for making his glory known in the world. And get this. We're told that God created like good works for us to do in advance, like beforehand. That we are God's masterpiece. That he's creating this new humanity. And as we've said already throughout the letter, not just like individual people, although that's true, but a new community. And the masterpiece that he is weaving together in the new humanity, his church, he has created good works for us to walk in. And I want you to notice something. Notice where the passage begins. Paul talks about being dead in trespasses and sins and how we once, what? walked in them. And then verse 10, these good works, what is God's desire for us? That we might walk in them. Things come full circle in the story. They come full circle with the bad news from the good news. We're not just saved from bad news, we're saved into good news. And we have a role to play. Uh, Let me, as we close, put up our mission statement. We've been putting this up Um, many times. But our mission statement is, we equip people who have diverse stories and backgrounds to embody God's story together in the everyday stuff of life. I talked last week about how that word embody means to give concrete form to, to, to make visible. And that's really what Paul is talking about here, that God has prepared good works for us, that he's prepared a mission, a purpose for us as his people, that we might embody his story. Remember, we asked this question last week. We were talking about the invisible role of Jesus over the world. How is that role made visible? It's through his people. As we embody the story together, as we give concrete form to it, as we make it visible. And so let me ask you this, and I want to do it in the context of community groups. What good works has God prepared for your community group? As you embody God's story together, 
in relationship with, uh, with others, who you are bound together in the context of your community group, what good works has God prepared for you to do in order to make the invisible role of Jesus visible? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Maybe sometimes it's hard to be thankful because it requires us to hear and to receive bad news. But you tell us the bad news because you love us. You want us to be wise. You want us to know what is true about ourselves and the world in which we live. And so for that, particularly in this passage, Father, we give you thanks that you have loved us so much that you have not held back hard truths from us. But we thank you that you have intervened in the bad news. We thank you that in Christ you have acted and made a way of rescue for us. I pray that we would believe that firmly, that we would find our identity in that, and that you would shape us as your people for good works in this city and this region. And I pray for those who have joined us this morning that aren't sure where they stand with all of this. I pray that you would reveal Jesus to them, that they would be willing to receive the truth of the the bad news and the good news so that they might too be caught up in your story. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.